Nighttime on Still Waters. This is NB506812, narrowcasting into the night from somewhere on Britain's waterways. Thirteenth of March, Saturday. Sitting here in the well deck, at the messy edge of late winter, in the silence before dawn. The world feels as blank as the year, but everything is full of the life that will occur in summer. The life still unborn, the bees, dragonflies, the gnats that will dance above the waters. And then there will be the ducks that I will meet, who will perplex me with their behaviour, and the loose strife flare, and dandelion globe, and the shimmer of light through silver birch leaves that is yet unformed, the smell of rain on hot pavements, the nettle flower that I will see, and the millions that I will miss, two swallows darting across African skies as I sit here, dream of English summers as I do. This is the narrowboat Erica, sailing on the cusp of a spring night, canal side. Welcome, and thank you for dropping by and spending a, a little part of these nighttime hours with me. I hope the NB wannabes and Wilma have their Ovaltine ready, and that Bella has finally got the good ship NB on a whim firmly under her control and guidance. Hello and welcome to MJ Brasso as well. It's uh, lovely to have your support. Thank you. And it's also really lovely to hear from Carol Knight Ennis. Pamela, is, is Carol a relative of yours? And I'm so pleased that the, the little library of books here in the stern of the Erica has inspired you to hold on to your beloved books. I have to say that I am really surprised by how much I've fallen in love with my Kindle. I've always been a bit dismissive of them in the past and have tried them. And I absolutely hate reading from a computer monitor screen. But I've been really pleasantly surprised. And I have to say it's a, a real delight just to curl up with uh, the book on the Kindle. But... Um, it is a, a very different reading experience, and and I totally agree with you, Carol, about there really is nothing quite like holding a physical book. In fact, a, a couple of sessions in some of the modules that I teach, um, I, I explore with the students how a text is so much more than just symbols on a, a written surface, and the importance of the format and the form in which it's presented. And the reading experience of a book is very different from that of an e-reader, and I, I, I totally understand. And I'm also really pleased that I'm not the only one who loves the smell of books, both new and old. Uh, they have that distinctive smell. And childhood Christmases, to me, are just characterised by the smell of a new book, and particularly the old annuals that you used to get, and they had a very distinctive smell. But books become part of your lives, 
much more than just being a book. And I look across at the books here on the shelves and I can remember where we bought each one of them and perhaps the decisions, the uncertainties, should we buy it, should we not? And it takes you back to things in your past. Uh, they're good friends. So I'm, I'm glad that you are going to keep your, your library. Don't forget, I'm always really eager to hear from you and hear about your news and your ideas and actually any suggestions and questions that you might have for future episodes. And you can contact me either on the social media platforms on Twitter, Instagram, or our Facebook page. And the details are in the program notes that should be appearing below this. Or you can contact me via email at nighttimeonstillwaters at gmail.com. Watching the barometer needle rise and fall and the wind pattern shift reflects those changes that are occurring almost imperceptibly around the boat. There's a feeling of movement, of change in the air. And it's not just the energy of the blustery westerlies that have been pushing those huge leaden grey swabs of cloud across the sky. Change is everywhere. Well, it always is, but I guess it's a little bit more perceptible, a little bit more visible now. The social networks of the ducks continues to change and morph in a bewildering complexity. The large groups of winter have now fragmented even more visibly into pairs and triads. Couples stomp and doze and forage. On land, the males always following, trudging behind the bright-eyed females. It could be a scene from a supermarket aisle in any town in the land, but perhaps without the implied sexism. Territories are being defined and asserted. Rules beyond my understanding, enforced. Perhaps they're familial, or perhaps some more complex flock hierarchy. It's busy and frenetic, bouts of intense activity settling into long spells of dozing or quiet foraging together, accompanied by those companionable clucks and clicking purrs. One of the ducks has nested in one of the container planters put out by side one of the boats. There's eleven eggs in it at the last count. Scuffed earth covers the majority, but sometimes the recently laid egg is visible and bright. And when she's finished laying, that's when she'll sit on them. I had never realised that before. It seems a bit reckless and a bit back to front to me, but then what do I know about raising a duck? I'm a Corvid man through and through, and all I know is that you wouldn't get a rook doing that. Earlier this morning I came across, when I was walking with Penny, a predated egg. That fight for survival has already begun. 
and the fussy little moorhens flapping and in their constant state of panic are also moving on too. Nests are being built. And the swans have had at least two half-hearted attempts at building a nest, pulling out the dead reeds, strewing them on the ground, and beside them a couple of pairs of ducks padded and foraged, and one of the moorhens hectored and fretted, and the sun was dreamily warm. And I too could hear that song of spring. Then one of the swans moved off, and the other continued for a short while longer. But when I later looked back, they were both together, gliding on the surface of water that looked like beaten pewter, the stuff on which myths and fantasies are made. Everything is in the state of transition. Not just the seasons, not just meteorologically, we all are. Socially as well as naturally, although the two, of course, are enmeshed more than most realise. The other week I had my Covid jab, and now lockdown restrictions are beginning to be lifted to a world that's perhaps a little more uncertain. A couple of boats have already left, and there's news of more on the way that are about to join us. And a few weeks ago, when the canal was still locked in ice, a new boat came, and we got a new neighbour right next door to us. Stoppages and ice meant that it was brought down from the north by lorry and then craned in just below us. One of the boaters here brought it round. The person moving on was having to self-isolate. And as he brought it in, we smashed the ice in front and so we have a new neighbour. And she and her cat are making that transition from land to boat. And it's a steep learning curve, and it reminds me of that curve that we are still very much on. Perhaps we'll always be on that learning curve. How do you light a stove and keep it going throughout the night? How long does water last? How quickly do toilets fill? How do you get a gas bottle into its locker? Where's the switch for the water pump? It's the first time for our neighbour to be on a boat. It's been a dream. It's also been a bit of a baptism of fire, but she's doing really well. It reminds me of our journey, moving aboard, setting up home here. It was more gradual and we had the luxury of more time and glorious weather but it was an uncertain journey nevertheless. And each tiny setback, the thing that suddenly didn't work or goes wrong, seems to be like the end of the world. But then each tiny step forward is a huge triumph, an endorsement that, yes, this is the life, and we are suited to it. It's not that life is so much different from life in a home. And in many ways, it's much simpler. And you'd think then that the setbacks wouldn't be so much of a problem, but they are partly because it's the problem's not what's wrong. It's quite often quite clear what's wrong and therefore what needs to be done to put it right. 
However, the problem can be, how do you put it right? Things are not set out as they are in a house. And each boat seems to be designed differently. And pumps and valves and tanks are placed in all sorts of different positions. And it's interesting to see people who have lived on boats all their lives when they come onto a new boat, uh, just as perplexed as somebody like me. And so everything is in the state of transition, a state of flux and flow. It's the natural order of things. The movements in the soil below us and the air currents above us. The ancients knew it well and the predominant themes and motifs in legend and fairy tale and folklore is about the journey or the quest. And religions expressed it too. The Tao, the Halakha, Sharia. Words that all mean journey, movement, walking, way. Even the first followers of Jesus Christ before they were called Christians refer to themselves as followers of Hohodos, the way. And Heraclitus expressed it so powerfully with his image of the river in the 5th century BCE. So why is it that we find change so hard, so unnerving? It's our natural state. So surely we should be used to it. And yet that impulse to resist that change is so strong. Whole political movements and ideologies and environmental policies and initiatives are predicated on exactly this resistance to change. Why does change so often become associated with the negative of loss rather than gain? And where do we get this impulse to try to grab that which is passing or has just passed, to try to stop the ride? Of all the literally unnatural impulses that we have, this must be near the top. I remember reading years and years ago, Peter Mathiason in The Snow Leopard mentions that in ancient Egypt, the verb to grab also meant to die. I've subsequently tried to look it up and I, I can't find it anywhere, so I, I could have dreamt it, but I kind of quite like that idea. And perhaps it just boils down to the fact that we haven't quite reconciled or resolved those tensions between the settled and nomadic existences of our past. It's almost as if we are fish that have lost our nerve at swimming or birds that have lost our nerve at flying. It's strange and something I can't quite get my head round. Why is transition? Such a challenge, and the older I get, the more of a challenge it is. And my attention is drawn back to those waterfowl communities around us, and particularly to the single birds, the, the juvenile female duck, 
born last autumn amid the blustering equinoctial gales, and she keeps herself apart from the others. And also all the older males and females, sometimes joining pairs and then swimming or walking off to forage and preen alone. And the little coot, as busy and as boisterous as ever. And are they too feeling that pull of movement, the subtle and not-so-subtle shifts in transition? They seem to swim the seasons of life so much more effortlessly and easily than humans. But then, who knows? A couple of weeks ago, a swan flew overhead. It was so low that I could see the texture of its webbed feet and the individual feathers ruffled by the wind. And it circled and passed low overhead two or three times. And as it did, it made soft, strange yelping noises as it passed. Our two local swans pushed out into the centre of the water, wings raised in warning. Each read the other. Communication was effective and successful. It's difficult to read these encounters, to sympathise with the lone swan, to feel protective to our local pair who have survived to gather the winter. And was this communication of aggression or de-escalation? an attempt to avoid violence. The lone swan passed overhead one last time, before heading north, over the greening patchwork of fields and to who knows what. Beneath it, our neighbour and her cat, finding their feet in a strange new world, its challenges and triumphs. In fact, the whole human world, caught in that flow of movement, of change, of transition. And perhaps that's why those little yelps from the lone swan echo so powerfully in my mind. The wind song of its wing beats articulated so clearly the exhilaration and even sadness of the flow of life, reaching out to the unknown, trying to slow down, trying to speed up. I watched it until it was a small dot in the sky. But as I turned to go, our pair swam up, close together, tails wagging, usually a sign of stress. And I watched them, dabble for the food that I put down for them. Some days we're the lone swan, some days we're the pair and the river will always flow, and the seasons will always turn, and things will always change, and we will always know that joy, and perhaps at times that sadness of that movement. And it's for that journey, for that transition, we are made.
This is the Narrow Boat Erica, signing off for the night and wishing you a very peaceful, warm and restful night. Good night. Temperature outside, 3.5 degrees. Inside, 26 degrees. Humidity, 75%. Dew point, 1 degree. Wind direction, west. Wind strength, 13 miles per hour. Barometric pressure, 1001.7, rising. Cloud cover, 10%. Cloud ceiling, nil. Precipitation, 3.3 millimeters. Moon phase, 0.2%. Waxing crescent. Day length, 11 hours, 43 minutes. Sunset, 1807. Skycasting, 622.